Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about philosophy, and we're going to be talking about the philosopher Peter Singer. Now, like the last episode, we're actually covering a person who is still alive and still producing works. So this is not somebody, you know, from the ancient past. As we moved into the 20, 20th and 21st century, it was inevitable we were going to start hitting uh, writers and thinkers that are still living and active. And Peter Singer is one of these. Uh, Peter Singer is often mainly known for uh, in the animal rights circles, um, but his writings and his influence is much wider than that. Um, Peter Singer has a book uh, out of, um, from this book is where I'm talking, the essay I'm talking about. Uh, the name of the book is Ethics in the Real World. Uh, 82 Brief Essays on Things that Matter. Uh, this book is is basically compiled from different uh, newspaper and magazine articles that he's published, and these aren't published in you know philosophy magazines or philosophy newspapers. One of the things that Singer talks about in the introduction to this, and talks about in general, is the fact that you know if you if you just write very complex philosophy and put it into treatises, there may be five or ten people in the world that will read it, and it's not going to have very much of an impact. So in this way, he's a lot of, he's a lot like Hannah Arendt. Uh, his idea is that, you know, these ideas are ideas in the real world, and therefore these are things that need to be shared with everyone, not just the, you know, elite philosophers, the five people at the top that can understand them. And there are a few philosophers and thinkers, uh, especially in the 20th century, especially as, you know, uh, media becomes able to bring, uh, you know, more information to more people through, you know, uh, television shows, through, uh, you know, later on the internet and internet videos, things like YouTube, um, you, you, you can start to get access to a lot more of these intellectuals. And so a lot of them have shifted um, from not just writing heavy philosophy books that will only be read by people in the field to realizing if we want to make this relevant, we need to embrace a medium that everyone can, can understand. And this is actually part of my uh, reasoning for these podcasts is that I want to bring philosophy and literature to everyone, uh, not just the people who can afford to get a philosophy or literature degree. If you look at, just looking quickly at the table of contents, I'm not even going to read all of the article titles in here, um, but you can see that this one book covers a lot of different essays, a lot of different topics, I should say. Uh, the first section is called Big Questions, um, you know, Essay titles like The Value of a Pale Blue Dot, Does Anything Matter, Is There Moral Progress, um, The Quality of Mercy, Thinking About the Dead, Should This Be the Last Generation, uh, Philosophy on Top. Philosophy on Top is, is the one that I'm actually going to be talking about in a little bit. Then he has a section on animals, uh, Europe's ethical eggs, uh, if fish could scream, cultural bias against whaling, with a question mark, a case for veganism. Um, and then he has uh, Beyond the Ethic and Sanctity of Life. Uh, and he has, you know, titles like The Real Abortion Tragedy, uh, 
treating are not the tiniest babies. Uh, no diseases for old men. When doctors kill, choosing death. Um, then he goes into bioethics and public health. Uh, that talks about an essay about the human genome. Um, kidneys for sale. Uh, many crisis of health care. Uh, way more, pay more. Should we live to a thousand? Um, then he has essays on sex and gender. Uh, in you know, homosexuality is not immoral. Virtual vices, a private affair. How much should sex matter? Um, and then doing good, you know, uh, the one percent solution, good charity, bad charity. Uh, then he has a section on happiness, uh, happiness, money, and giving it away. Uh, can we increase the gross national happiness? And he has a section on politics, um, the founding fathers' fiscal crisis, why vote, um, is citizenship a right, the spying game. Then on global governance, uh, escaping the refugee crisis, is open di diplomacy possible? The ethics of big food, um, <clears throat> should polluters pay for climate change? And then science and technology, um, life made to order is one of the titles. Rights for robots with a question mark, uh, a universal library, um, the tragic cost of being unscientific. And then his last section is called Living, Playing, and Working, How to Keep a New Year's Resolution, um, Volkswagen and the Future of Honesty, Is Doping Wrong? So you can see just from the list of those titles, and I didn't read all of the titles, there are a lot more essays, I just wanted to give you a few from each section, that he really does cover a wide range of topics. Um, and this is because he, like Chomsky, like Hannah Arendt, view philosophy as something that should be engaging in everyday life. It shouldn't be something that is removed. And I've often felt that's one of the problems in especially 20th and 21st century philosophy is that a lot of the philosophers have really tried as hard as they can to almost almost seems like they've tried to be difficult to understand. Uh, and, and it almost for some of them feels like they're treating it as a badge of cur or a badge of honor, I should say, if no one can understand really what they're talking about. And you know, these three thinkers that I talked about, uh, Hannah Arendt, Chomsky, who we'll do an episode on in the future, and Peter Singer, are all people that say no. These philosophy deals with issues that deal with everyday life, and therefore it needs to be brought to everyone. Um, if people think philosophy is something too hard and you just can't do it and, you know, they just run away from it, uh, they're going to leave most of their thinking to someone else. And, you know, as we can see, if you look at the news if, and you look at society, uh, it's, it's generally a recipe for tragedy and for chaos when you leave your thinking to someone else. And so thinkers like this are really a lot of the inspiration for why I teach the way I teach and why I, you know, do this podcast in particular is that I do want to make people feel philosophy and literature are not only accessible, but also show them that, yes, this stuff does apply to your life every day as well. So I want to go into a little bit of the essay, Philosophy on Top. And this is not a very long essay. It's three pages. Um, you know, again, this is something that, this is why I think he's really good in that you know, he gives you ideas to think about, but doesn't overwhelm you with, 
oh my goodness, I've got to read a 500-page book and maybe I'm going to understand three pages of it. No, he, he he's good at boiling it down. He's good at keeping it in terms that people can understand because he wants you to engage with these ideas. And it starts out talking, and this is 2013 is when this is from, it starts out talking about a report from Harvard University set off alarm bells showing that the proportion of students in the United States completing a bachelor in degree humanities fell from 14 to 7%. Even elite universities like Harvard have experienced a similar decrease. <clears throat> and he says, I don't know about the humanities as a whole to comment on what's causing the enrollment to fall. Um, perhaps it's not uh, likely to lead to filling or pay, uh, paying careers. And I honestly think that's one of the big parts of the problem is that people often when they look at the, you know, philosophy or literature major, they say, well, what can you make with that? Implying how much money can you make with that? And the answer is more complicated than uh, what people think, because it's not just, okay, I have to get a degree being a, or I have to get a job being a philosopher, or I have to get a job being a writer or an, a teacher of writing or a teacher of literature. Um, the skills that you learn in the humanities, and he talks about this, are skills that have application outside of philosophy, outside of literature. Um, because a large part of philosophy and a large part of literature has to do with, uh, one, analysis. And analysis, if you work in any field, whether it's economics, whether it's engineering, whether it's medicine, I don't care what the field is, uh, construction, there's always a large part of your job that is analysis. You have to look at the situation, figure out how you take it from where you are to where you want it to be. And in order to do that, you have to have very well-established thinking skills, very well-established uh, ways of approaching your material. And the humanities, philosophy and literature in particular, are really good at focusing on those skills. So a lot of times people may get degrees in those and then may end up going into banking or into finance or into, um, you know, city planning or uh, working through, you know, doing charitable organizations. You know, there's all different directions you can take this. The foundation of this is the thinking skills. And if you look at, you know, the news for even three minutes, you realize that we have a severe problem with thinking skills in the world. Um, people are much more likely to be swept along by their emotion than by actually slowing down and thinking about things. Um, and he says, I, I don't state, uh, I don't make a judgment about any of this. Um, and he says in the next paragraph, I am a philosopher, so you would be justified in suspecting bias in my view. Fortunately, I can draw from an independent report by the Gottlieb Duttweiler Institute, a Swiss think tank. And basically, this report he talks about um, talks about the 100 top uh, thought leaders uh, for 2013. And thought leaders mean the people who really shape the way people think, the way the public thinks, the way a discipline thinks. Um, but they also have to have influence outside of just their field. So if they're, an and these, these people are engineers, scientists, economists, philosophers, writers, you know, all, all different fields. And, and part of their scale is, do they have influence outside of their field? In other words, if they're an economist, 
do people outside of just economics classrooms ever know about their ideas? Are their ideas known and applied and talked about even among the general public? And they measure things like, you know, do they have, uh, you know, internet sites that have a lot of hits or YouTube pages where people are watching a lot of their lectures? Um, you know, do they give a lot of public speeches to not just experts, but to the, the public at large. So there's a lot that goes into this. And one of the things that he points out is the top five uh, of the list of 100, three of those people are philosophers. One of them is Peter Singer, uh, the author of the essay in the book. Another is Daniel Dennett. Another is, okay, and I'm going to murder his name because it's a Slavic name and I don't speak it, speak that language. Uh, Slavov Zizek, and I, I apologize again for anybody who speaks a, Sl a Slavic language if I just completely murdered the name, but um, he is a Eastern European thinker and writer. Uh, Daniel Dennett is uh, big in um, sort of philosophy of the mind, so he has a lot of crossover with psychology. He has a lot of um, uh, influence in uh, evolutionary biology, um, talking about, uh, you know, not only issues of understanding it, but ethical issues as well. Uh, Slavov is a political thinker. Um, he is mainly a Marxist thinker and does a lot of critiques of the modern world through a Marxist perspective, but he is widely read. He does do lots of public speeches. He does have, you know, speeches posted online and different platforms. Uh, and one of the other uh, people in that top four is, is a, a sociologist named Jürgen Habermas, which we will talk about Habermas too. Uh, but Habermas is one of these people that even though he's generally classified as a sociologist, he actually has a lot of crossover in the field of philosophy, and he has a lot of crossover also in the field of literary analysis. So his work isn't confined to one field. So you can technically say four of the top five are either, you know, directly called philosophers, or the, the fourth one is someone who is um, very much straddling philosophy and sociology. And again, we're going to talk about all three of these other people as well in, in future episodes um, because they are very much contemporary. They are very much looking at the world we live in now and analyzing it and giving, you know, sometimes popular criticisms and sometimes unpopular criticisms. Uh, one of the things about delving into the world of ideas is you you have to kind of push it out of your head for a minute whether you are going to like the idea or hate the idea um, and not make that a, uh, a decision of if you accept the idea or how much of the idea you accept. Because one of the things I've found from my years of study is that I've never read anyone that I agree with 100%. Um, I always find they have lots of good ideas, some really horrible ideas, and some ideas that are kind of middle of the road. And so you can't, oh, I hate this one idea, so I'm going to completely not take anything else into consideration. 
Um, so, you know, as you read through these people, as we discuss these people, you're going to agree with some, you're going to disagree with others, but all of their, them are important because they're all part of uh, the conversations that shape the world we live in. You know, when political figures or religious leaders or, you know, cultural leaders are, uh, you know, doing anything, they're not making this stuff up off the top of their head. They're, they're bringing it from a background of different thinkers they've been exposed to, and then they're adding that in with observations they've made of the real world. And this is always the way you should approach philosophy and literature. Take these ideas in, think about them, but then also stretch them out and say, okay, how does this apply to the real world? Does this accurately describe the real world? Does it accurate, accurately describe parts of the real world but not make sense in other areas? So you have to realize that ideas do go out into the world. They do have connections, and leaders don't come up with ideas out of nothing. You know, one of the things that I can generally, once I know what a, some uh, politician or leader of some type is saying, I generally know who they've read because I can hear the echoes of the ideas of the people they've read and the things they've seen. So the, you know, as he goes into this essay, he starts talking about things like this. It's like, you know, what do you do with this degree? And, you know, he talks about the fact that, well, you know, some people have, uh, you know, contributed to different fields. Some people have taken, you know, a philosophy course and changed something about the way they live um, because they realized the way that they had been doing things was either, you know, not functional or something that they were doing just because it was a habit that they were handed. And, and this is something that unfortunately most people do. Uh, I often say most people are carrying someone else's bags because when you become an adult, one of the things you have to do is look at all of the ideas you were taught as you were being raised and look at them critically, not just look at them and say, yep, this has to be the way it is, but actually hold them up to scrutiny. And the ideas that hold up to scrutiny and, and really pan out, then yeah, you should adapt those and keep going with them. But at that point, they become your ideas. Ideas that are ideas that you realize this doesn't hold up to the way the world really is. Um, this is just baggage that I've been handed. Uh, those ideas you can discard. Um, and when you come to this point, what you're doing is actually now you're carrying your own luggage. You're not carrying somebody's baggage that they handed to you that you don't even understand what it is or why you're carrying it. So people like Singer are really good if you want to get into reading a little bit of philosophy, reading a little, in particular, he focuses on ethics. Uh, again, you don't have to agree with everything he says, um, but you will start to get uh, even on the things you disagree with, you'll start to get a little bit of an understanding of why people who do believe that might hold that opinion. Uh, and when you start to get that kind of understanding, you stop looking at anyone who disagrees with you as being stupid or evil and start realizing, no, they just have a different set of ideas. And once you understand their ideas and where they're coming from, only then can you start to look towards, okay, how can we find some ground in the middle 
where we can both work on things. Because once you've dismissed the other side as just evil, wrong, stupid, whatever you've dismissed them as, you've pretty much lost your ability to uh, function with them. If you want a good example of this in the real world, look at the Republicans and the Democrats. They've completely demonized each other, and they have almost zero ability to work together. Even when an idea comes up that both of them really want, if it's brought up with, by the other side, well, the other side brought it up, so we, we immediately must shoot this down. Um, and, you know, this polarization of ideas uh, happens when you don't really think about ideas that are different from your own, that challenge your own. Uh, sometimes you're you're going to still be even more convinced, yeah, I'm right, um, but you'll at least know, okay, this person at least has reasons for their ideas. And sometimes you might look at your own ideas and go, wow, I was way off with this. I now see a bigger picture of the world and, you know, your ideas change. Changing your mind is not, uh, as many people would like you to believe, a sign of weakness. It's actually the sign of a active and dynamic thinker. If you get new information and realize the way you were doing things or the way you were thinking about things isn't really very good and move into a different way, that's called growth. That's not flip-flopping. That's not, you know, not having the intestinal fortitude to stick to your ideas because sticking to your ideas, no matter how much, you know, you've been given evidence that they're wrong, is not a sign of intelligence. It's not a sign of a um, of a thinking person. It's the sign of someone who is like the two-year-old who wants to plug their ears, close their eyes, and hold their breath because they want their way and their way only. So I highly recommend uh, delving into the uh, works of Peter Singer. Um, he has a lot of stuff on YouTube, so if you want to watch some of his actual lectures, he has one that's a TED Talk. Um, but he has a lot of other ones too. You know, as you as you do these, listen to these episodes that I do, um, remember these are doors. I'm opening doors for you to uh, look into rooms that you may not have thought about before. It's up to you whether you open those doors and look around. Uh, no, no teacher, no professor can ever make you learn. Uh, a, a good professor is just sort of like a you know, the, the locksmith. They just run around with the master keys, opening the different doors, uh, giving you lots of new perspectives, new things to think about. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well and staying safe. Uh, I am going to end this episode for now. We'll be moving back to the world of literature next time, and I will talk to you soon. Have a good night.